Give up my Atari? My television? How about for this? You bet your asteroids. Introducing the revolutionary Vectrex arcade system. No TV set needed. Instead, Vectrex has a real arcade screen built in. So you get challenging real arcade graphics and sounds with every Vectrex cartridge. No wonder Vectrex was chosen two to one over Atari and Intellivision for real arcade gameplay. So compare. Discover how Vectrex brings real arcade play home. Welcome to another episode of Classic Gaming Brothers. I'm Zach. And I'm Seth. And we are the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's right. We are the Classic Gaming Brothers. Before we get into the episode, I need to go through these uh, the stack of papers I have here. It looks like uh, this is a, a note from the producer. This is another note from the producer. This is also another note from the producer. So our producer, even though he's... How many feet do you think that is? That Doug's standing away from us. Well, his face is currently pressed up against the glass. Yeah, but the glass room is like, what, 10 feet, maybe six years? No, it's much closer than that. <laughs> this is a very tiny studio. I'm pretty sure if Doug punched the window right now and broke it, he could grab me. Well, anyway, he, he writes us letters. Well, they're more like angry sticky notes that he then sticks all over our computer. Yeah, he puts them everywhere. I found one under a toilet once. He did He did uh, leave us a note. It said uh, that he's been meaning to talk to us um, and thinks that we could do with 20% more zingers and that we have to figure out what our top 8 to 10 zingers are, which is what I told Zach is what happens when you ask the producer to figure out what your top zingers are. He's going to tell us to do it. Uh, so now we apparently have that work to do. And he was also talking about how we mentioned pleasure pits in a recent episode, but they're now technically known as sunken living rooms. And he believes that they are a travesty and a hazard, although they are making their way back, but only because the world is an awful place. I think aesthetically they look very cool, but practically they look very dangerous. But they do feature in Anacrusis, so... <laughs> yes. Well, uh, I feel like I've uh, I've read this, which means I can now push it off my desk and we can move on with the episode. So, Zach, what have you been playing recently? Seth, recently I've been playing Mickey Mania, the timeless adventures of Mickey Mouse for the Sega Genesis. This is a 1994 platformer developed by Traveler's Tales and published by Sony ImageSoft, which I thought was fun that it was published by Sony on a Sega console. And it's a Disney game because Sony and Disney right now do not get along. And a few years later, Sony and Sega would not get along so it's kind of fun that for one brief period of time in 1994 they were all unified for the purpose of mickey mania and is it traveler's tale the same company that would go on to make lego games yes uh traveler's tales would make the lego franchise of like lego star wars and uh etc etc lego insert ip that became their kind of big money maker anyway mickey mania is a platformer where you play as mickey mouse the famous copyright character from Disney, and you go through various famous movies that featured Mickey Mouse. Uh, this includes Steamboat Willie, The Mad Doctor, The Band Concert, Moose Hunters, 
Lonesome Ghosts, Mickey and the Beanstalk, and The Prince and the Pauper. So you're also going through the ages as you start out as early as the 1920s and then you end with The Prince and the Pauper, which I think at the time was one of the more recent Mickey movies. It's overall a fun game, though I will say it's incredibly hard. Even in some of the earlier levels, uh, Mickey can only take a few hits and then he's dead. So uh, it seems like everything is also out to get you. I'm also just kind of bad at it. So there's that. Um, that doesn't obviously make it so it's an easier game. Um, one thing I will say that makes it kind of fun to play and also fun to go back to is just how nice the game looks. Uh, for a 1994 platformer in the Sega Genesis, it has some really fluid animation um, and some really impressive graphics that they incorporated. And this is largely thanks to the team at Traveler's Tales, including John Burton, who worked on Toy Story, also for the Sega Genesis, and Sonic 3D Blast. We briefly mentioned John Burton when we had Phil on when we talked about the Harry Potter games, uh, because we are talking about something related to John Burton and his uh, YouTube channel. But John Burton does have a YouTube channel. It's currently called Coding Secrets, though previously it was known as Game Hut. And uh, he details the production on a lot of the games he worked on and um, provides these in-depth analysis of the way he got the code to work on these relatively underpowered hardware um, that he was essentially being told to make impressive games for. And it's really interesting to watch him do these breakdowns of games like Mickey Mania and Toy Story and Sonic 3D Blast, as well as see, you know, his ideas about how he could have improved on those games. Now, apparently there was a plan to make a sequel to Mickey Mania called Mickey Mania 2, and Part of that sequel was going to have a first-person segment, and in a video that John Burton posted on his YouTube channel, he shows some early prototypes of what this would have looked like, and apparently, as placeholders, he inserted Doom graphics. So Mickey has a life bar that looks identical to the Doom guy's life bar, with the face making, like, the angry faces when Mickey shoots. And he also gave Mickey Mouse a chain gun, and he sent this over to Disney as a joke. Uh, it's, uh, pretty cool to see kind of, uh, what could have been, but if you want to see what was and what actually became a game, uh, check out Mickey Mania, The Timeless Adventures of Mickey Mouse. For the Sega Genesis, it's also on the Super Nintendo, but I didn't play that version. So, Seth, what have you been recently playing? Recently, I've been playing Agatha Christie's Hokuporo, the first cases. It was developed by Blazing Griffin and published by Microids. It definitely feels more visually novel on a scale of, like, 1B being a visual novel and 10 being an adventure game it kind of sits at like a four I feel like so far where it's definitely more of like a very structured adventure game with some exploration features which arguably if you take out the exploration features of all adventure games they kind of become visual novels but I read someone saying it's like 30% exploring and 70% connecting the dots which I don't mind connecting dots as a game um, I mean I played Democracy 3 which is a lot of dots but um, so far it's been pretty good it scratches that adventure detective niche that I usually have at any moment and it also seems pretty forgiving when it comes to solving mysteries and since I'm an idiot that's pretty good. I played through part of the intro and I will continue playing the game. As I said it's, it's definitely more visual novel. I tend not to play visual novels but it's got enough of an adventure game layered into it that I do like it. I also enjoy Hercule 
Matthew Perot, and I enjoy Agatha Christie. So that's all works together. So hopefully it'll be a fun kind of romp as I play through uh, Hercule Perot's uh, earlier missions cases. <laughs> I guess cases. Missions would be a little weird, but definitely uh, his earlier cases. It came out, I was going to say last year, but it technically came out two years ago. It came out in September of 2021. Does it play kind of like the Sherlock Holmes games? Sherlock Holmes games, there's like a million of them, right? I've played most of them. They tend to be more adventure and they also, except for the ones that are more uh, seek and find. This is not a seek and find game, but the dialogue has kind of like a, a visual novel type pacing to it. But the Sherlock Holmes games tend to be a little more, let's say, so far a little more dynamic and a little more like puzzle oriented like game like in the game world puzzle oriented versus like the puzzle of it being a murder like the Sherlock Holmes game is there's a puzzle of it being a murder and you also have to only step on the sixth tile as you walk your character through an area uh, where Hercule Poirot is there's a murder and that's the puzzle <laughs> a little more adventure game for Sherlock Holmes and that's kind of like you know that's fine they can both exist simultaneously I also feel like in the scheme of things I feel like Sherlock Holmes the detective is far more an adventure game than Hercule Perrault the detective I feel like if like Hercule Perrault and Sherlock Holmes had to have like a detective off Sherlock Holmes is the one that's like climbing waterfalls and doing cocaine and Hercule Perrault is just like a bureaucrat who slowly solves mysteries <laughs> well in today's episode we're not talking about sherlock holmes and we're not talking about mickey mania uh, we're talking about a game console uh, another game console because we only recently just talked about the arcadia so why not stick to the 1980s and that era of game consoles that came out? We've spent a lot of time talking about some of the game systems that made their debut in the early 1980s from various companies. And today's topic, the Vectrix, sits squarely in that time period, quite literally, because it's a very square looking system. The Vectrix started life in 1980 when it was conceived by John Ross of Smith Engineering. According to some sources, Ross and a couple other engineers, Tom Slopper and Steve Marking, went to a warehouse in Los Angeles that held some surplus equipment for their company. While there, they stumbled upon some one-inch cathode ray tubes and wondered if they could use these to build an arcade game machine of some sort. Now, for those unfamiliar with cathode ray tubes, uh, they are better known by their abbreviation, CRTs. CRTs are a type of vacuum tube that contains an electron gun. The gun shoots electron beams at a phosphorescent screen to display an image. These images would could be waveforms, they could be radar targets, or most popularly, they could be pictures. CRTs became the pretty much the default method of displaying uh, uh, images until the advent of things like plasma display panels, light-emitting diode displays, or LED, or liquid crystal displays, LCD. CRTs were also already being used in arcade machines, so the idea of using a small CRT for a home video game system was something that was alluring, because people would already be familiar with that type of technology if they've ever been to an arcade. Now, after presenting this idea to their superiors, the development began on a cathode ray tube display that could draw vector graphics. So let's do another piece of vocabulary right now. We've explained cathode ray tubes. Let's explain vector graphics. Vector displays or vector graphics is a type of graphic where the image is drawn using lines rather than a pixel. So when you think of a video game, typically that image is done in what's called 
raster graphics, where each image is made up of tons of different tiny pixels. Vector graphics are not pixels, they are lines. So you'll have two points and they draw a line from point A to point B, and that can be used to create an image if you keep making points. Vector graphics often aren't as detailed as something like, however, the image was often crisp and could scale very nicely. One problem with raster graphics is if you have an image and you try to scale it up, it starts looking blurry. It doesn't look as good. With vector graphics, you can scale it up as much as you want, and it will always look pretty much as crisp as it does at any size. Now, as a visual comparison, if you're listening along, uh, Google the original Star Wars arcade game and look at the graphics for that game. That uses vector graphics. Now Google the Return of the Jedi arcade game. That uses raster graphics. So you can obviously see a difference right there. For the Vectrix, the vector display meant that the games would be incredibly crisp looking, but unfortunately, only be in black and white. And we still use vector graphics today. Oh yeah, I mean, as computers have gotten faster and better, vector graphics have become able to be detailed. Um, you know, you can have images that use vectors that are incredibly detailed, but back in the 1980s, not so much the case. Right, and in fact, vector graphics are also now like a standard when it comes to images for websites because mm -hmm. of their ability to stretch and shrink, but still maintain their resolution and right. they don't become like when you shrink them they don't become fuzzy which is why if somebody is like i need a vector graphic that's what they're looking for so that they can make it bigger or smaller on like a t-shirt and it'll be okay now the original prototypes and were for the vectrix were a smaller handheld unit. Uh, as the idea evolved, however, the team opted to change from a one-inch CRT screen to a nine-inch screen, moving from something that you can hold in your hand to something that you could hold in your hand uncomfortably. As Smith Engineering was not in the market for actually building the Vetrex to a, a larger scale, uh, they shopped it around to some manufacturers. The first manufacturer was General Consumer Electronics, and they unveiled the machine at the Summer Consumer Electronics Show in June of 1982. The Vetrix would be released to the public later that year in November at the starting price of $199, or $603 in today's money. For comparison, the ColecoVision launched the same year at $175, or $530 in today's money, and the Atari 5200 launched at $269, or $815. Now, all also, keep in mind, we've talked about this a lot, this is the 80s, the early 80s, so we're going to probably see how the Vetrix is going to do based on some other factors that are going to be, it's going to be going up against. But according to those that it was going up against in the market versus the ColecoVision and the Atari 5200, the Vetrix was actually priced pretty well and was really put right competitively priced against who it would be really going up against as its direct competitors. Now, in in 1983, due to a low volume in the sales during launch, Milton Bradley would buy out General Consumer Electronics. As Milton Bradley was already a well-established brand, they were able to begin marketing the system across the world, including creating a deal with Bandai to release the console in Japan. The Vetrix was a unique sort of 
system as it was somewhat portable, at least in the way that you don't need a dedicated TV to play it. The CRT was part of the system. This arguably could be seen as an appealing factor for the general audience. Most families in the 1980s only had one TV, so anything that kept kids from hogging the only TV screen would likely be appealing to parents. The system also has a fairly small profile, being about 14 and a quarter inches tall, 9 and 3 fourths inches wide, and 11 and a half inches deep. It also weighed about 15 pounds, allowing it to comfortably sit on a coffee table without damaging anything. For controls, the Vetrix had a controller that would pop out of the main system, and when not in use, it could be stored just below the screen. Once you eject the controller, a port for a second controller would be accessible, allowing two players to be able to use the machine if desired. The controllers had an analog stick and four buttons, considerably less buttons than the ColecoVision, Arcadia 2001, Intellivision, or the Atari 5200. And you guys may know my opinion on the Arcadia 2001 amount of buttons. I would have probably enjoyed that there was an analog stick and four buttons versus an analog stick and 400 buttons. <laughs> the system's computer and vector display was created by the designer Gary Carr. Uh, the computer would run the game's code, detect inputs, and control the vector generator to create images and generate sound. The vector generator itself was analog and would communicate with the computer through digital to analog converter. Now the machine ran a Motorola 68A09 CPU, which clocked in at about a 1.5 megahertz. It had one kilobyte of RAM and utilized a general instrument A138912 sound chip. The CRT was actually off the shelf. It was a Samsung model 240RB four zero uh, and it was a monochrome unit measuring approximately nine and 11 inches and yeah it was off the shelf it w- would have been also used in various small black and white tv sets of the time now one negative element to the machine on its early release was a noticeable buzz that could be heard from the built-in speaker this was because the signal lines of the audio were not grounded later designs of the vectrix would actually make adjustments to this in order to meet the united states fcc guidelines at the time which indicated that you had to properly ground your equipment. Along with the games, uh, which we'll get into, there were also some peripherals that were available for the machine. One was a 3D imager. And I think this thing is kind of cool because it worked like almost VR, but not in the way you might expect. What it would do is you would wear this 3D imager and it would have a spinning disc that would go very, very fast. And for 180 degrees of that disc, it would be black, but then there would be small breaks where it would have openings that you could see through if it was moving at that right speed. These breaks would be different colors, red, green, and blue filters, which would actually give the illusion of color because it was moving so fast and it was overlaying over your eyes. As the disc spun, and as you looked at the image on the Vectrix, it would actually sync up with the program that you were playing, depending on the program, and it would make the image appear almost 3D. And that was kind of cool. I mean, because you're not using like a whole separate tech to get this 3D image going. It's actually using essentially what is an optical illusion, which I guess all VR is just optical illusions, right? Because it's just technically you're unfocusing your eyes and forcing them to view an image after you take two images. Isn't life an optical illusion? Now, another peripheral was a light pen, which would allow the user to be able to draw on the screen. The light pen was also kind of unique in that it would work by using a light 
light detecting receptor that would detect the vector display. Uh, this would feed a pulse to the Vectrix in the software you were using to draw the image on the screen. Now the light pen and the 3D imager actually had their own essentially proprietary software that you used with the, the peripherals, but some of the software was something like Artmaster, which the light pen could use, or 3D Mindstorm, which is a game that worked with the 3D imager. Now, Vetrix games came on cartridges and were accompanied by color overlays that could be inserted onto the screen, similar to the Magnavox Odyssey. Yeah, no, the Magnavox Odyssey did the exact same thing. Yeah. There were 28 games released officially for the system, with most being developed by General Consumer Electronics. Some of these games, like Berserk, Pole Position, and Armor Attack, were ports of popular arcade games. There were some original games like Cosmic Chasm, where you play as a spaceship and you need to destroy the Cosmic Chasm. There was also Clean Sweep, a maze game where you play as a bank president who must recover stolen money using a vacuum cleaner. That sounds grand. And there was actually a rare, unique version of Clean Sweep released called Mr. Boston Clean Sweep. Oh, where you play as Whitey Bulger. <laughs> no, you play as uh, a, a branded version of the game branded by the old Mr. Boston Liquor Company, which was a Boston-based liquor company. And uh, it featured slightly customized graphics, but the biggest change to the game was that it had a big old label on the front that said Mr. Boston. There was also Spike. Uh, and I'm going to drop in some audio for Spike in a second, but this was a platform game that features some of the earliest voice synthesis in video games. Uh, Spike was this weird little creature that you play as who must travel to find his girlfriend, Molly, uh, who had been captured by an, a, a villain named Spud. The voices are kind of bad. Uh, it's very early voice synthesis, but, you know, commendable for the time. Another popular title, and popular pretty much by default, was Mindstorm. And the reason it was popular by default was because this title was built into the Vectrix. So when you turn the Vectrix on, if you didn't have a cartridge stuck in it, it played Mindstorm. Now, Mindstorm was pretty much just asteroids, but instead of destroying asteroids, you're destroying mines. And the mines actually have like an explosion effect when you um, shoot one, so you can't be too close or else you'll get blown up. The original version of the game actually had a bug in it, funny enough. So the literally the version that everyone has. And this bug would cause the game to crash on the 13th level. So something that people could do was they could call General Consumer Electronics electronics and request an updated version called Mindstorm 2. So they would get a cartridge in the mail if they called and reported this bug. But not a lot of people did this. Maybe because they didn't know, maybe because they didn't care. But only a few people would end up doing this, and thus only a few copies of Mindstorm 2 are in existence, making it one of the rarest titles for the system. Currently, in today's market, a loose price of Mindstorm 2, loose as in just the cartridge, can set you back $779. A complete wow. price, still in the box with the overlay, will set you back $1,700. Mr. Boston is so much more expensive, though. I just compared Mr. Boston. The Mr. Boston Clean Sweep, that rare version, $7,000 for a loose copy. CIB copy, $15,000. Now, did anyone pay attention to the years this system launched? The early 1980s is, historically, 
a bad time to release a game system. However, a lot of people did it, and that's why it became historically a bad time to release a game system, because everyone was releasing video games, including General Consumer Electronics slash Milton Bradley. The Vetrix I did very poorly and proved to be an incredibly costly mistake by Milton Bradley. The company tried to compensate by dropping the price 25% and even as deep as 50% to get rid of units. This did stop them from losing about $31.6 million. The console was discontinued and new games were canceled in 1984. Milton Bradley would attempt to recoup some of the money by selling their entire inventory to mass market discount houses who would then sell the system at a fraction of its original price, with one forum post indicating that the systems were sold for around $50 or $133 in 1986 at a Toys R Us. Milton Bradley would later merge with Hasbro in the later part of 1984, and support for the council was stopped, because Hasbro was like, no. Now, after some digging around, there seems to be some different figures tossed around for the actual number of Vetrix sold due to manufacturing both in Hong Kong and Taiwan, which makes tracking serial numbers tricky. Some estimates in various forums postings put the number at around 600,000 units sold, but this should be taken with a grain of salt, as who knows how many Vetrixes were sold, not a lot, and no one cares. Yeah, I think somewhere I saw a post where someone's like, so is it safe to say that between 200,000 and 600,000 were sold? And someone's like, yeah, probably. <laughs> but a lot of the a lot of the speculation on the on the sales can be found in like the Atari age forums and such. Pretty much what people do is they just look at the serial numbers and they subtract. They find like a higher one, they subtract from the most recent, like the earliest one, and that kind of will give you an idea. But 600,000 units is the estimate, and I, I think that's sounds accurate. I mean, it was a really bad time to release a game system. Now, despite the terrible sales numbers, the Vetrix actually does exist in a kind of positive light due to its uniqueness. Reviews at the time were actually really favorable, with Byte Magazine calling it one of the greatest machines we have ever seen this year in a uh, pre-release look that came out in 1982. Hobbyists and homebrewers continue to work on new projects for the system and an emulator called Para JVE, which has been around since at least 1995. In the past few years, Vetrix multicarts have also been made available through some websites that offer a collection of several games into one convenient package. So pretty much, if you want a Vectrix and you want to be able to play a majority of the games that came out on it, it's not that hard to actually track down a lot of these games if you just pick up a multicart. It's probably easier for your budget, so you're not paying $7,000 for Mr. Boston. But that will do it for the Vetrix, which I think is this kind of really cool system that just came out at the worst possible time. I think if the Vectrix came out in 1980 or 1979, it could have been a game changer, but nope, it came out in 83 and absolutely tanked in the market. No, oh, should have came out in 95. I mean, even if it did come out a little later, it would have been competing with the Game Boy, but like, it's just kind of such a unique system. Like the games aren't amazing on it, but I can see, you know, if it came out the right time and the right people were behind it, I could see third-party developers jumping on board and trying to experiment. Apparently there was talk of trying to do a Vetrix color. Things that I think could have been weren't. It's almost like we need a Disney's what if for the Vectrix. Like Ooh. what if the Vectrix came out two years earlier and like instead of Atari, it's Vectrix. You know, probably not. But hey, Milton Bradley probably would have made a bit more money. 
but such is the case. Well, maybe Milton Bradley wouldn't have been bought out. Anyway, we're going to get into our retro rewinds now, where we're going to talk about some of the games that we have given each other to play. Seth gave me Pajama Sam, There's No Need to Hide When It's Dark Outside, a game created by Humongous Entertainment back in 1996. This is a great game. It's an adventure game created where... It's an adventure game where you play as Pajama Sam, a child who reads way too many comic books. Pajama Sam, one night, um, is tasked with defeating darkness, which hides in his closet. And when he opens the closet door, he falls into the world of darkness, where he now must confront his biggest fear, darkness itself. And darkness is like personified as an entity. In the world of darkness, you get to meet a variety of individuals, from some trees that are jerks and steal your stuff, to a uh, really grouchy minecart who uh, likes to talk with like an old prospector accent. And there's also a boat that you meet that doesn't understand how buoyancy works because he's a wooden boat that's afraid to go in the water. And these are some of the delightful, delightful people that you meet along the way as you look for some stuff that you lost so that you can defeat darkness. Now, game plays like a lot of humongous games. Pretty much all humongous games play the same way with various levels of difficulty. Um, and that way is bring object to place. So you go to a location, you maybe see, for example, uh, your lunchbox is under the water. So you must find something to bring your lunchbox out from under the water. And that's pretty much how the game works. Is this necessarily a boring way to play games? No, I actually think it's fun, and I think for the age demographic, which was primarily children, it's a good way to get kids to uh, kind of do some problem solving as well as experience adventure games, which, you know, to be fair, there are some adventure games that were not targeted toward kids that have the exact same mechanic. So, do I think Pajama Sam, there's no need to hide when it's dark outside holds up? Yes, I think it does hold up in a very nostalgic way, because I grew up playing Pajama Sam games and Putt-Putt games. But, if you are someone who's looking to get into humongous games, for some reason i'd say give it a shot it's like a really simple adventure game you could probably play it under an hour it's also fun if you have kids and maybe you want to introduce the kids to video games but are looking for something a bit wholesome and not necessarily violent or complicated check out the humongous games i think they hold up even in that regard, you know, they're really well animated games. So the graphics kind of haven't really aged at time. And uh, yeah, I definitely say give it a shot if you like adventure games. Seth, next week, I want you to play The Adventures of Batman and Robin for the Sega Genesis. I'm fun. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. For some reason, I thought when I was reading through the notes that it was going to be the adventures of Robin Hood and Batman. No, that would be good, though. He steals from the rich and beats up the Joker. No, Robin Hood steals from the rich and then Batman beats up the Joker. They're just buddies. Wait, does Robin Hood steal from Batman? Because <laughs> Batman's rich? Yeah. Now, Zach had me play Doom Troopers, which was released in 1995 and developed by Adrenaline Entertainment and published by Playmates. Doom Troopers is a run-and-gun side-scrolling shooter. You play as either Mitch or Max. I'm only getting Max's last name was Steiner. Mitch's last name was something. And you have to fight across uh, planets, killing zombie aliens and other alien-type creatures. One of the planets you get to fight on is Pluto, and that's just great. Anyway... This time, I read the manual before I actually played. Uh, so I actually got pretty far at the first level before I lost all my lives. It's a fun shooting and jumping game where I discovered halfway through the game, even after reading the manual, that the floating things in the sky, they were crates that I had to shoot. I didn't know what they were, but I figured it out. And that was fun when I discovered that. Uh, you get a gun that, that's like blasting. It's like a like nice machine gun. You get, there's some special weapon pickups depending on who you play as. So if you 
play as Mitch, you get a rocket launcher, and Max has a flamethrower. I only played as Mitch because he was the first person to select, and I just clicked start through everything. I didn't even watch the intro. I did read the manual, though. You can play cooperative as well. Uh, it was released on the SNES and the Sega Genesis. I played it on the SNES because Zach told me to, and it's pretty gory for the SNES. Which is fun, because you don't see that on the SNES all the time. You see it a lot on the Genesis, but you don't see a lot of, like, over-the-top gore on the SNES. And you even can, like, shoot zombies' heads off and stuff like that. You also have the option to stand in place and pivot your gun instead of just running gunning, which is a cool use of the SNES um, shoulder pads. I enjoyed it. And I think out of the games that Zach has given me recently, uh, this one holds up pretty good. I used an 8-bit Doe controller that looks like a SNES controller. And I think that helped out a lot since the mapping in the manual is the same for the controller. Next week, Zach, you can play Lord of the Realms. Nice. On You can do Don Doss. Oh, okay. Cool, we'll do. Because it's on DOS, or I think you can even play it in a browser. Apparently, I can get it on Steam for $1.99, so. All right, well, that will do it for today's episode. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. If you have any memories of the Vectrex, be sure to email us at classicgamingbrothers at gmail.com, or if you have any suggestions on future episodes, or if you just want to tell us that you love us, classicgamingbrothers at gmail.com. Now, you can also reach out to us via our Facebook, Classic Gaming Brothers, Instagram, Classic Gaming Brothers, Twitch, Classic Gaming Brothers, or Twitter, CG Brothers Pod. Be sure to like, follow, subscribe, do all those things that you need to do to learn about future Classic Gaming Brothers episodes because we are available on all the major podcasting applications out there. Uh, We are also going to be at the Boston Area Retro Game Show on February 26th, which is from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. So if you're in the Boston area and or New England area and you want to go to a small retro game swap, come check us out. I will have a table, so I'll be selling a couple of games and I'll have some business cards and such to pass out. And I might bring a couple of buttons and things to hand out to any people that recognize us oh, yeah. as a little gift. If you want to get a great deal on your on Zach's crap, wait till he goes to the bathroom and I'll sell it to you cheap and for cash. Entry for the Boston area retro game show in Rockland is $5 at the door. Kids get in for free, so... Be sure to check it out. Um, I think they have a Facebook page that you can follow if you're interested. It's at the Doubletree Hilton in Rockland. We are also going to be wandering around PAX um, in March. So keep an eye out for us there if you are at PAX. Feel free to send us an email. Let us know you're going to be there. Uh, PAX East, by the way. Boston, PAX East. Uh, we're not just going to some random PAX. Um, so yeah, let us know if you're going to be there. We'll be glad to meet up. Maybe grab some food, grab a drink, um, talk about video games do all that stuff so thank you everyone for listening and i think that's everything uh, unless i forgot something don't play games like my brother and don't play games like my brother i've been seth and i've been zach and we've been the classic gaming brothers that's right right